shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, it's 2016 and it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and with me always is the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. I, uh, I didn't get everything I wanted for Christmas. I, I asked Santa for a new partner, and, and I still got you, but... Uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to resolve to, to be uh, better behaved next year. Maybe I'll get it next year. Uh, if you want a new partner, you can uh, you can get one now. I mean, I'll, I'm sure that there are people out there that would love to be your partner, uh, but well, uh, I don't know that you've you just now. Wife. Well, I don't think you really need a new partner. I'm going to do the best that I can to make sure that uh, you have an awesome 2016. And i got to tell you, Kelly, I mean, as we yeah. start the show now, this is our second year. I mean, we're getting yeah. coming up on our second year being partners and doing the show. And I think it's been uh, uh, pretty awesome. And I think we've had a good time. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things and mm. uh, it's certainly, it's like hanging out with the boys, you know, every, every, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we get together and we record and uh, it's the highlight of my week really until I hang up with you and then something else happens. <laughs> I uh, well, I, I look forward to uh, stripping down and, and sitting naked in my beanbag chair with my Cheetos and, and recording. So uh, yeah, you're the highlight of my week for at least forty five minutes. So, so I'm going to tell you this right now. So everybody who doesn't know, Kelly Grayson does Kilted to Kick Cancer, and when is that? Is that September? September of every year. Okay, so if you, I will pledge right now, if you take a picture naked in a beanbag chair. Eating Cheetos, I will pledge five hundred dollars. Done, done. I will blur out all the all the uh, the PG thirteen and R rated parts, and and done. All right. So I'm just I'm just <laughs> telling right me, now. Sucker. I am just saying right now <laughs> that that's a picture I'm going to have. I don't oh. know where I put it, but I'm going to have to share it with it. And all the listeners out there just know if I'm paying for it, you get to see it. The sad thing is, I don't actually own a beanbag chair, so those people at IKEA are going to really be shocked. <laughs> That's right. I mean, they're going to probably throw you. Off. But you know, Kelly, let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit. Let's get this show going. And I'm glad that the holidays were good for you. You know, I, I had a very good holiday as well. Hopefully, everybody out there, you had a great 2016. But I got to tell you, you know, we're going to start this year off. And I don't know that we're going to be very festive. And, uh, you know, I've got some bad news that came out of Fort Worth, Texas in the MedStar yeah. system. And one of my colleagues, uh, you know, took his own life over the holiday. And it was a, it was a shock. It was a surprise. Because when you think about um, the person who he was, he was a great paramedic, professional, funny, uh, always there to give you the shirt off his back, uh, always there with a smile. And to hear that he succumbed to his own, um, by his own hand, uh, shocks a lot of the people who talk about it. And uh, Curtis Young, I'm going to say, uh, you know, you rest in peace. And uh, hopefully you found some solace uh, where you've gone and, um, you know, the pain is gone for you. But I got to tell you, man, you and I have, have worked over the year to try to bring awareness to mm -hmm. first responder suicide. And I'm I'm a little bit emotional right now as I talk about it, but yeah, you and I have tried to ensure that people who are out there that need to talk have somewhere to go, and um, I, I think we're we're fighting a losing battle here. And uh, but this is something that you and I have, uh, you know, we, we we made our mission, and I think we're going to continue to do that. And today, 
we're going to jump right in and take a seat at the guest table. I want to go ahead and introduce Sarah Melke. Sarah is the new author of the Emotional Trauma Life Support Course. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Good to talk to you again. Kelly, nice to meet you. Yeah, glad to have you here, Sarah. You know, so now for those of you who don't know, and we're going to talk about Emotional Trauma Life Support. And Sarah is, uh, she's got a lot of great information that she's going to share with us. Uh, this is going to be a 16-hour course the way that it looks right now. There's going to be a lot of components on it that are going to help the people and give them the tools that they need that we don't usually get during our initial training. But, but Sarah, I want to spend a couple minutes with you first talking about, you know, I, I started the show by talking about uh, my friend here, in, in, my friend in Fort Worth, and succumbed to his, uh, his depression or whatever it was that, that caused him to, you know, to take his own life. But the reason that I want to start this with you from an understanding standpoint is you and I have done interviews before. And one of the things that you said that, that really touched me, that I'd really be interested in your insight was, during your, the height of your depression, you fought for your life every day. So could you give us some background as to, as to the feeling here, to, to the despair, to, to, to what's going to cause someone to make this decision that it is so final? Well, Chris, it's not even so much the pain. It's the fact that there's no end to the pain. It's kind of like having just this terrible migraine headache. That terrible migraine headache gets just a little bit better when you take some painkiller and you know that in 30, 40 minutes, you're going to feel better. But the mental and emotional pain that goes with depression and despair has no predictable end. And as far as you know, this is the way it's going to be forever. As far as you know, you are completely permanently broken and you're never going to feel all that good stuff again because you know what the world's like now. And what we're also finding with PTSD and, and some of the stress reactions is that the part of your brain that is responsible for time, putting past, present, and future together, actually checks out at some point. So you really don't have any sense of hope for the future. You lose the fact that there is a future and your world just narrows down to just the now, just the present, just the pain. And it's so constant and there's no relief from it. And the thought of that going on any longer, there comes a point where you would do anything to make it stop. You know, the, the, the time aspect uh, hits home. Um, I, I've, never, I've never been suicidal. I, I feel for anybody, anyone who has. But when I am depressed... Uh, yeah, there is no, there is no future. There's no past. There's just what's going on here and now. And for me, it's usually a, a computer screen or a task left undone that I'm just focusing on blankly uh, to the exclusion of, of everything else healthy in my life. Um, and it's, it's hard to dig out of that hole. It's hard to see beyond it. And, and, you know, you, you keep telling yourself, uh, okay, if I just get this one thing done, you know, but that thing never gets done, uh, and you're just spinning your wheels. You wonder when it's going to stop. Uh, and you know, Chris, you were talking about Curtis. You know, it surprised everyone uh, that knew Curtis. But I think that's more of that that EMS ethos. We just don't share 
that pain. Uh, there's a stigma to it. And, and no one, even the guys who should know better, who've been in EMS for, for many years and have, have supposedly de uh, developed our coping mechanisms, we still uh, think it's weakness to, to reach out to our partners and say, look, you know, I'm hurting here. Yeah. And one of the things, Sarah, maybe maybe I, I piggyback off what Kelly just said. And the question that I had as you were talking about, you know, your definition was there are people out there that are functional, that are communicating, that are, and Kelly says this all the time, and I've kind of coined it, that are sitting, um, you know, 18 inches away from us that are thinking about killing themselves. How do we know? What what is the outward signs for people like you know Kelly and I, who has a partner who's not sharing his challenges? So how do we know? I mean, what 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 do we use as a gauge to say maybe there's something going on here because people are walking around functional and and we don't know what they're thinking inside their head until we find that they haven't shown up for work the next day. You know, Chris, the parallel that I use a lot to explain this to people is that when we talk about shock, we talk about pediatric shock, we talk about kids that compensate and they look like they're doing great, they're stable, they're stable, they're stable until they're not. And we're the same way because of skills we have to build in EMS, skills of not showing the emotion on, on scene, the skills of being able to hide what we're thinking when we're dealing with somebody who's just abused their child. The skills we have to use to take care of the perpetrator who just shot the cop, those skills allow us to hide really, really well. And so those same skills come into play when we are high-functioning despair, basically. We cope really, really, really well, and we compensate really, really well until we don't. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, you drew the, the parallel with, with pediatrics and how they compensate. And I've always said that, that those people who, uh, those people who, who uh, the pediatric uh, collapse or the pediatric code takes them by surprise, um, I always say that the signs were there, you were just paying attention to the wrong thing. And, and in EMS, they, they don't teach us what to look for. They don't teach us how to evaluate and assess a mentally ill person. And, and God knows they don't teach us how to be a mentally ill person and, and how, to, how to cope. Um, we are woefully unprepared to deal with, with the damage uh, uh, and, and hurting people that we deal with uh, on a daily basis. Um, some of us learn it you know, ad hoc and, and on the job and, and develop some skills. But many of us, myself included, don't. And God knows we don't know how to do it uh, for our, our colleagues and our loved ones. Um, so I guess that's where you come in with, uh, with something like uh, ETLS. I'm, I'm glad to see a course uh, that's going to finally address those things. Thank you. Yeah, I think a big part of the problem that we're facing and part of the reason that these two subjects became joined to form ATLS is that some of the calls that do the most damage to us are arguably the ones where there is this thing that's being called emotional trauma, where there is someone who's died, there's someone who's dying, there are grieving people whose world has just shattered. And we are, those are the calls that we are not taught to handle, but those are the calls that are doing the most damage. And so it's kind of a double whammy for us in fire and EMS in that 
the calls that hurt the most are the ones we're least prepared for. Yeah, that's very interesting how you put that. So, Sarah, let me ask you a question, and, and let's go ahead and switch gears to talk about why you're here, and that's uh, emotional trauma life support. And what was, what was, how, how'd you do, 16-hour course, are you kidding me? I mean, what was the, how did you get there? Well, Chris, like I said in the in the last interview, they say that uh, the best way to boil a frog is to put him in a nice cool pot of water and then slowly turn the water up, and the frog is boiled before he knows it. And that's kind of how it happened with uh, with ETLS. I had an assignment for my bachelor's degree program at Central Washington University that ended up having me write a paper on death notification. That was my part of the report. And unfortunately, I've had some some experience with that, so I wrote that part of the paper. And I got some compliments from Dr. Minoski, the head of my program, who said this is fantastic and should be taught to every paramedic. And I wrote back and said, you know, oh, thank you. That's you know, a lovely compliment. And he said, it goes without saying that you're more than welcome to give this presentation to our paramedics at any time. And that was a, a huge compliment because that's a university program. And so the next quarter, I had a class in educational methodologies with Dan Limmer. And as part of the final project, I had to develop a basically a two-hour training program. And you had to choose a subject and put together educational goals and such. And I decided, well, you know, I'll just use this death notification stuff on the crazy, crazy off chance that I ever end up actually presenting this material. And while I was putting that together, I stumbled across some parallels that just suddenly grew out of control and I realized a new way of teaching that grief support and death notification and then I realized that those exact same principles that I was using to teach these two topics applied perfectly to what we see on the job and how we deal or don't deal with what we're seeing and so all of a sudden ETLS became something much bigger it continued to grow and grow until it was a 16-hour training program, <laughs> complete with a prospective textbook and handouts and the whole nine yards. Well, it sounds you know, exciting. Go ahead, Kelly. In, in, reading, in reading the overview of it, I found it very interesting that, that you, uh, you basically formatted it in, uh, in such a way that it's, it's familiar ground for just about anyone in EMS. It's a it's a 16 hour, uh, I hesitate to say card course because I, I take a dim view of card courses, but this is one that we need. It, it, it fills a need. Um, but, uh, uh, but you're using language that all of us can, uh, all of us can understand. You know, it's, uh, you use a term, you, you pin this to existing scaffolding uh, that uh, the same format, the same type of language we talk about. It's just, it's like BTLS or PHTLS, only it's it's psychological trauma. And, and, and think of it in, in those terms uh, that we are uh, becoming injured by the things that we are, we are exposed to and how to mitigate the effects of those injuries and, and how to provide treatment for it is something that uh, just about any EM, EMT can understand. So, why don't, you, why don't you expand on that for us and, and tell us more about I see that for all of our skills and training, and we are a different breed. You know, we have a whole different skill set, a whole different options package, if you will, 
than the general population. We have a lot of training that we go through. We have certain skills that, that are unique to us. We have a lot of experiences that they'll never have. But I think where we're running into trouble is we forget that underneath that options package, the base model is still human. And that is, let's face it, that's awfully inconvenient half the time because it means that the stuff that damages human beings damages us. And we don't like to admit that, but there's going to come a time where we're going to have to realize that bad things happen to human beings who see certain things. And we're not immune to that. When I got in my car accident, I didn't get out of having a head injury just because I'm a paramedic. The forces that affected my car and my head didn't care about my certification. And it's a, much the same with this emotional trauma. The stuff that we see changes us. And one of the things I hope to do with ETLS is to really show and explain how and why that happens. Because it really is intensely logical. There is a number of things that happen in the brain, chemical changes and structural changes, parts of the brain that literally go offline during a traumatic experience, and then they go offline again every time you have a flashback. So there's very literal, logical reasons for the things that happen with PTSD and, and different stress disorders. And it's my hope that if I can show the how and why of some of these things, that we can better understand and that we can better actually reach out for help. You know, I, I was... Uh... I was struck by the your um, you saying that that uh, the calls that we can't do anything about uh, the the people we can't do anything for are the ones that damage us the most uh, where where people have lost a loved one and and uh, there's nothing to do. How much of that do you think is so stressful for us and that it gives us nothing to compartmentalize? You know, when you do a when, when you're working a code or when you're working a bad trauma, you can put all that stuff aside and, and shove it away because you got things to do. Um, but when you get there and there's nothing to be done, uh, nothing to be done but deal with, with grieving parents or, or family or people whose lives have just been shattered, um, you know, that's, <laughs> you, you can't avoid it then. You, and and that, that's, uh, that takes its toll on just about anyone who, who still has a soul. Um, and hopefully ETLS will, will show us how to uh, mitigate the effects and, and limit the damage. Well, absolutely. And I do talk some in the Responder Mental Health module. We talk about how we are as a profession because that's a major factor here in that we are a helping profession. We are used to going in, we give them some oxygen, their breathing gets better, we give them some albuterol, the wheezes start to go away, we give them some right. D50 and they wake up from the dead and start fighting us. And, and, and when we can't help, it, it hurts. hurts exactly. Us. exactly. And so even on the calls where we can't help, for example, you've got a cardiac arrest, you're working, you don't get the person back. But you know, you go back to the station, you look at your algorithms, you know that you gave all the drugs at the right time and the right dosage, you have your protocol, you did everything the way you could, you find some comfort in that. 
just because you didn't win, because there might have been too many factors involved in that person's pathophysiology, you know that you can get some comfort out of the fact that you know you made a difference, you know you did your job, and to the best of your ability. One of the things that we're running into with these grief support calls or these death notification calls is we don't have a protocol, we don't have a frame of reference, we have no way of knowing how we did, and so that lack of a measuring stick, that lack of a way to to know we made a difference can be a real problem for yeah. our personality types. Yeah, and type A personalities really suck at, at being helpless. Yeah, yeah, so let me let me ask you this then, as, as I'm thinking about this, is it our own ego then that puts us into a position of now having the feelings of stress and anxiety that we couldn't save? You know, because I used to say, if uh, I can't save them, it was just their time to go. So mm -hmm. are we allowing our egotism to cause some of this, uh, I guess, trauma in us? Chris, I don't think it's egotism at all. I think it's... It's the world that we're used to. Most people, they see something horrible happen. They see a car crash. They see somebody suddenly grasp their chest, fall over, and stop breathing. They don't know what to do, but we do. We go into situations that no one else knows how to handle, and we do something about it. And a lot of the time, there's a result to what we do. It's not so much egotism as it is confidence in our skills and the fact that we do make a difference, even if it's not enough. We still make a difference when we show up on scene. So, no, I don't think it's ego. It's us expecting to make a difference because we usually do. One of the problems with these grief support calls is that grief is a complex process. Grief is, mm -hmm. is something that is long-term, and you are not going to see an improvement in your patient during that time that you're on scene. You're going to see people who are suffering, and there's nothing you can do about it, which is going to do damage. And then lacking the ability to say, okay, I couldn't do anything for them, but I know that I did my best. I know that I followed my protocol. We have no framework. So there's no comfort in that either. So we find ourselves just kind of left hanging and going, why did I bother going on that call? And then after a while, that becomes, why am I doing this job if I can't make a difference for people? This is why I started doing this, is to make a difference. And if I'm helpless, that really tears at my professional abilities and also my identity because that's another part of our character is that for us, our abilities, our job is very much interwoven with our identity, very much, much more so. than, say, a real estate agent. You, you put that very well, Sarah. That's, you know, we, we're the personality types that root. We crave constant feedback and, and constant uh, reassurance. Uh, that's why we, we got into a profession where we're all about the 10 minutes of care rather than the next two or three days. Uh, and not being able to see the results of what we've done is, is, is uh, draining, uh, to say the least. For, for type A personalities, not getting that feedback and not being able to see uh, the, the effects of, of our care is draining, uh, and when you see it every single day, uh, it it's wearing on you, and, and it takes its toll. It's cumulative, we know, and and after a while, you, those calls are the ones that you that you focus on the most. You, you think that uh, rather than than just be a part of your day, they are your day. They're every single call. It seems like uh, those are the ones we tend to dwell on 
to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah, then it seems we're chasing the call to say, mm -hmm. I got to do it better the next time and have a different outcome. But Sarah, let me go ahead and ask you this then, as, as we're starting to get up there in time, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, are going to be interested in this course. Are, are you, are, I mean, how do you become an instructor or how are you going to be able to take the course? Have those details been worked out yet or, or where does it even stand at this point? The course itself is, is almost complete. Module 1, the introductory module, is complete. Module 2 is the responder mental health. That, to me, is the keystone of the program. Um, so that's getting a lot of my focus. That one's probably, I would say probably at 90%. And then Modules 3 and 4, which is the grief support and death notification, are probably 95 97% complete. They're just lacking a few things that need to be added. I was hoping to have it released by the first of this year, but that didn't turn out to be a realistic goal. As I said in the press release, I'm kind of aiming for a first quarter 2016 release. The work is day in, day out, just trying to get this completed because I want to get out there and start teaching it every bit as much as you guys want to have the training or to become trained as instructors. That train the trainer course is going to be the next step after this is complete. And I have some excellent advisors that are working with me on designing that class and figuring out how we're going to distribute it. So right now, a lot of the, all my instructor contacts are coming from the website, the contact us form at my website. And I keep a log of everybody who is interested. And then I plot it on a map so I can tell where most of the demand is and I can tell where the first training centers should be. And there's also a follow button on the website that will allow you to put in your email address. And so when I update the website, you'll get an email. Why don't you go ahead and give that web address? What is that? It's etlsems.com. There's no www in front of that. Okay, awesome. I'm writing that down. Kelly, you writing that down? Yes. I'm committed to memory. I have an eidetic memory. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but... It, Sarah, it's a it's a course. It's been a long time coming. Uh, it's something that we desperately need, and I can't wait uh, for its release and in the first quarter of this year. And uh, look forward to uh, taking it and, and hopefully teaching it down the road. Yeah, don't. Yeah, don't 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 let him teach it. I mean, he's I mean, he's an okay teacher. No, I'm just kidding. Kelly Grace is one of the best <laughs> in the United States. But let me ask you this. You know, so as we get up there and close, and so this is going to be my last question, and I'm going to give it to Kelly to close. There are people out there that have felt what you felt. There are people out there that may be thinking about doing what shouldn't be done. Speak to those people right now and tell them that there's hope. You know, I spent 14 months there at the very bottom of the pit. In fact, I could almost see the bottom of the pit from as far down as I was. And I know the struggle. I, I've been there day in, day out. And I was absolutely 100% convinced, 100% sure that there would be no way that life could ever get better. I knew that I was completely broken and there was no way that I would ever be able to feel hope and joy and peace and all that stuff because I knew what the world was like now. And I knew the darkness that was in me. I knew the darkness that was in the world. And I knew that I was pretty much ruined and I was never going to amount to much because I was just a washed up broken down paramedic the head injuries had knocked me out of the flight program that I was working toward and I had nothing left I had nothing to
to hope for. I had no dreams. I had no goals. I just kept going. I just kept stumbling from day to day. And I was wrong. That stuff does come back. It doesn't matter how thoroughly that forest gets burnt down. Because I, I was burnt to the ground, I'll tell you what. It grows back. I was wrong. I, I, I had no idea. All that, the hope, the joy, the peace, all that good stuff, it really does grow back. And the neat thing is, when it does, it comes back in at a lower threshold, and it comes back in richer and deeper of an emotion than anything you had before this happened. I don't know how that works or why, but I know that your capacity to feel those things is actually increased on the other side of this. It does grow back no matter how much you're sure it won't. It does, and it's absolutely incredible. You know, and the, the insidious thing about those feelings is is they're so easy to believe because they're, they're whispering those lies to you in your own voice. Um, and, and I've said on this on this program before with Chris, you know, despair should never be allowed to whisper in a friend's ear without your voice in the other ear whispering, that's BS. It does get better. So remember that if you're feeling if you're feeling depressed and you feel like there is no hope, uh, I'm telling you there is. It does get better. Um, and and despair is a burden that you do not need to bear alone. Share it with someone. And the people that love and care for you will do their best to make it better. You can't bear it alone. And that's that's the whole point. Because if you're trying to bear it alone, all you'll know is where you're failing and that you're not making it. But if you have people alongside of you that can help you, they can show you that, you know what, you're expecting too much of yourself right now. You are tired. You are wounded. Yeah, it's not. it doesn't seem like enough to you, but you're actually you're doing okay. We're going to get through this together. And it warps your perspective if you're trying to get through it by yourself because all you're seeing is from a world that's increasingly narrow and very, very small. Mm -hmm. You need somebody to come in and to help you widen your perspective a little bit and to realize that you're believing some things that are not true. Indeed. Well, Sarah, it's great information, and we, we can't wait for the release of ETLS. Um, and for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for appearing on the show. And for all our listeners, be sure to email us your concerns, comments, and suggestions at the show at ems1.com. And here's to making 2016 a little brighter for our, our listeners in EMS. I'm Kelly Grayson, and thanks for tuning in. Catch you guys next week.